1: We discovered that peace at any price is no peace at all, that life at any price has no value whatever, that life is nothing without the privileges, the prides, the rights, the joys that make it worth living and also worth giving, is a quote from Eve Curie, the French and American concert pianist, journalist and diplomat, the daughter of Nobel laureates Marie and Pierre Curie. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, a chief executive who pursued knowledge in a number of fields, mathematics, French, literature, and biochemistry, as well as having attained a doctorate in cardiac physiology, who is now on a mission to promote and enhance the quality of life of our elderly loved ones. Our guest today is Linda Mellors, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Regis Healthcare Limited, a leading aged care provider, consisting of residential aged care, home care services, day therapy, Day Respite, and Retirement Village Living across Australia. Prior to joining Regis, Linda held a range of leadership roles in hospital and health systems, as well as a national aged care service. Linda is also a Director of MacKillop Family Services. She was formerly Co-Chair of the Victorian Metropolitan Hospital Chief Executive Group, Chair of the Aged Care Guild, the Aged Care Reform Network, and Northeastern Metropolitan Integrated Care Service, Board Member of the Parent Infant Research Institute, and Board Director of the Southwestern Melbourne Medicare Local. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Singapore, France and Japan, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of of Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, we gain valuable insight into an industry on the cusp of major reform, having gone through an eye-opening Royal Commission and a global pandemic that has seen their residents as some of society's most vulnerable, among a myriad of other challenges that will definitely test one's resolve. With Australia's ageing population continuing to rise, Linda, at the helm of Regis, is uniquely positioned to make a profound impact on the way we tend and care for our elderly loved ones today and in the future. So sit back and enjoy Power Through Purpose. Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Greg. It's great to be with you. You've got to be the original for us of tap dancers. We've never <laughs> had someone from a, a tap dancing pedigree join the show.
0: Oh, dear. Actually, I haven't tapped for the last couple of years because of COVID.
1: I thought you to be tapping regularly I... at home.
0: Uh, look, I, I did have a board where I was still tapping, but I, I haven't, haven't kept it up recently, but I'd love to get back to it. It's one of the best things I've done. Learning how to tap when you're over 40 is some of the best brain training I think that you can do. For the first year uh, when I started tapping, my right leg would cooperate yeah. and my left leg wouldn't. Okay. My brain would send the message and I'd look at the leg and I'd wait and wait and eventually it would do something, but it took about a year for it to catch up to the right. Oh,
1: okay. Now, the second part in the past, I know you're an exciting person to get to know, Chief Weeder as well. Oh,
0: <laughs> I love weeding. Don't, don't make fun of me for being a nerdy weeder. Um, I I love weeding. It's a bit sad. I've got uh, my next door neighbour is a GP Mm -hmm. and he has passed some diagnostic type comments my way uh, as he's walked past as I'm weeding the nature strip because he he finds that a little bit odd. And and the funny thing is I'm married to a landscaper and like all good trades, my landscaper will not weed and he will not maintain the garden. He'll mow, but everything else is mine, the pruning and and the weeding.
1: Where's mum and dad from?
0: Mum and dad are from the UK, so both from Nottingham, migrated to Australia a couple of weeks after they were married in 1967. So good Robin Hood country and a busy city, moved to Australia, landed in Perth and were there for the first year or so, and then uh, moved over to Melbourne.
1: And so for you, what stimulated the emphasis on education? Look, it's been really interesting. My
0: dad, he tells me he would be one of the only people in Australia who has a qualification at every single level of our education system, from an apprenticeship up to a PhD. And he did that over a really long period of time, as you can imagine, and with four children as well. So he did his PhD part-time over eight years with a young family. My mum didn't have the benefit of education, so she's really bright, naturally, Um, But, you know, the time she grew up, the education of girls just wasn't a priority. So for my parents, they came to a new country. They had four daughters and both of them were adamant that their daughters would have education opportunities um, equal to any male and that they would support us through whatever educational opportunities we wanted to take up.
1: And it sounds like you did take it up because you had quite an expensive set of reading when you're at university.
0: I was a full-time university student for nine years, and even when I got a job after the nine years, I still studied part-time for another year, so 10 years of tertiary education. My dad used to say to me uh, he feared I would be a perpetual student and never earn a dollar in my life. (laughs) But what did you study? I never knew what I wanted to be, and Mm -hmm. I think that's probably, um, you know, something that I still reflect on because I thought it was a problem. So I didn't know what I wanted to do and I had three sisters who knew exactly what they wanted to be from a young age. So when I finished school, I did something as broad and general as I could, so a double degree in arts and science. So on the one hand, I was doing mathematics. On the other hand, I was studying children's literature and French. So I did that and then an honours year in physiology which was really interesting and and looking at diabetes. And then I launched from there into a PhD. And you'll be fascinated, I'm sure, with the title, which I think, if I can remember it correctly, was The Mechanics and Energetics of Isolated Papillary Muscles.
1: I think I read it not that long ago. (laughs) Well,
0: you'd be the fourth person in the world then who's read it. So what
1: does that actually mean?
0: Um, so I was having a look at the efficiency of cardiac muscle oh, wow. and looking at different contraction protocols um, to try to mimic as best I could how the muscle actually contracts.
1: And what did you come up with?
0: That it was much less efficient than the old models that didn't use realistic protocols had shown it to be. So I, I disproved uh, my associate professor's life's work was not good.
1: <laughs> wow. So that I guess then was a stimulus and took you through to the commercial career in hospitals. Is that where it all began?
0: Again, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I'd spent nine years at university and still didn't know what I wanted to do. But I had worked out that repetitive um, experimental work probably wasn't my bag, but I still really enjoyed health. One of my closest girlfriends, uh, we've been friends since we were twelve, and she's a doctor, so she's a physician, and. So I said to her, Look, I, I need some career planning. Can you help? So we sat with a napkin in a cafe. And she said to me, Should you know what you'd be good at, Linda? Should you be really good at running hospitals? And I said, Oh, yeah, hadn't thought about that. That sounds good. So I moved into the hospital sector. Now we laugh and laugh about it now because we were two young people, you know, 26, 27. One says to the other one, You should run hospitals. Oh, yeah. I'll go and work in a hospital then. And within 18 months of entering that sector, um, I was an executive in hospitals and doing all kinds of things that were just such a world away from my um, science training.
1: So how are they all doing now, Linda? This is a pretty tough time. You mentioned the word hospitals. must be tough out there with the uh, pandemic.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I think, um particularly for Melbourne, it really hit aged care first, and I look at what the hospitals are going through now, and they're going through what aged care went through last year, just in terms of that relentless pressure, the moral fatigue. I think it's it's a really tough time for our colleagues in the hospitals.
1: Do you talk us through your sort of the, what I guess a couple of the key learnings and insights that us lay people who visit the hospital once in a? hopefully in the blue moon, what goes on behind the scenes? There's so
0: much planning that goes on, and there are so many clever people who are involved and um, people whose training is to solve problems. So when you look at doctors and nurses in particular and allied health clinicians and lots of other people, their training is all around problem solving. So they're fantastic in a crisis, the best people in a crisis. So they know how to prioritise, They know how to communicate and they know how to make things as safe as they can possibly be. Um, They're also human uh, and they do get tired and overwhelmed. But I think all of that's uh, in a really supportive environment where it's okay to be tired and overwhelmed and your colleagues understand that. You don't need to hide it.
1: What do you like so much about the whole scene and the whole medical scene?
0: I think I've always been quite curious and I I like working with people and for people. Mm-hmm. So actually, I was really curious about medical problems, but I didn't want to be a doctor. So moving across into health and those leadership roles there just gave me so many opportunities actually to satisfy a whole lot of interests. And the more I did it, the more people gave me positive feedback about leadership and And so I was really encouraged along by some wonderful mentors, really wonderful people. And so I worked in the hospital sector probably close to 20 years. And then in my last year at my last job, I was asked if I would also take on aged care, home care and retirement living. And I said to people, you know, on reflection, once you've seen aged care, you cannot unsee it. And I felt absolutely that that was the place I needed to be at this time. Uh, particularly on the cusp of, of major reform. And then Regis came knocking. And there's no better way to influence the shape of an industry than by going to one of the biggest uh, providers and leading it.
1: Well, for the benefit of the audience, you want to talk us through what is the scale and I guess what the ambition is for Regis?
0: Regis was established about 30 years ago by two entrepreneurs who felt they could do aged care better. Think, you know, just from a core purpose perspective, that really resonated with me. They'd been into aged care. Back when aged care looked like a hospital ward and you had people lined up and it wasn't, it wasn't nice. 30 years, they are both still heavily involved in the business, both remain board directors uh, and major shareholders. Regis now has 64 homes across the country, so residential aged care homes. And the business started with a single home. So they've built the the business over all of that time and matured the business across that time as well. Then we also have home care services, so providing services into somebody's home in the community and retirement living operations as well.
1: Linda, what do you think sets Regis apart from the competitors?
0: Look, Regis has such a strong purpose. So I'd come out of the, the not-for-profit and public sector and I, I probably carried um, some of the bias that, that we carry when we, we work solely in those sectors. So for me, I needed to absolutely believe that there was a, a values alignment with Regis. And I went through numerous interviews with the board. They'll tell you I interviewed them. But I, trust me, they, they did interview me uh, extensively. But I really wanted to understand the philosophy uh, behind the company Uh, what their purpose was, what their priorities were. And they absolutely convinced me that this was the right place for me to be.
1: You've advanced your career in in hospitals. You've built a good reputation. You've been rapidly promoted. But I've I've always wondered when it comes to the crunch and some of the key decisions as a CEO, as as you were, what is the sort type of decisions one has to make and the pressure that you live and die by?
0: I think, uh, you know, when we talk about, look, it's not a life or death decision, um, when you're in hospitals, actually, it often is. And whilst I wasn't making clinical decisions, all of the decisions that I made impacted on the clinical services My role, I ran um, a group of hospitals. So one of them was a specialist women's and babies hospital. So you can imagine the pressure of running that kind of environment, particularly in times of high demand. And then I ran a general hospital in one of the fastest growing regions of Australia. Doing all of the planning and the new service design and implementation, we were building constantly lots of capital project management as well as the the service planning aspect. In the end, I really, I had everything from pregnancy care through to palliative care. You know, one aspect of my work, uh, we had a neonatal intensive care nursery Mm -hmm. and we would take babies from 23 weeks of gestation in a layperson's parlance, half cooked. The average pregnancy is 40 weeks. So you can imagine Um, that you are sailing along, you think you're halfway through a pregnancy and suddenly you're going to labour and you'll find yourself at one of the tertiary women's hospitals. You might be from the country without family. And that was before we had a pandemic, by the way. You know, the, the pressure is very real. And in hospitals, you can't control your demand. Really, you're at the mercy of whoever turns up to the front door. And, and you must service your catchment. There's just so much work that goes on that people don't see to enable the whole community to have access to excellent, excellent hospital care. We are so lucky in Australia.
1: Where do we stand at that? Are we top of the punch with, in regards to medical support that we receive here in Australia?
0: Absolutely. I, yeah, I think it's absolutely wonderful. A person, any person, regardless of means, has access to the best hospital care.
1: What would you change? If you had the magic wand and we had the chance to review for all of Australia, what 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 could change?
0: Mm, this one might be a bit controversial. I'd love to take some of the politics out of health, um, out of health planning, health funding, um, just to have that stability that's not linked to um, election cycles.
1: That's the travesty of it all, isn't it? It is. So you build a career in, in this sector, you become CEO, but you get tapped on the shoulder and you go to this group called Regis. Why depart? Why go down this down this new industry?
0: It's a really good question. So I loved my time in the hospital sector mm-hmm. and um, didn't intend to, to leave it. And then really looking at the opportunity that I had in my last year of my um, former role to take on aged care as well, I could just see so many opportunities to contribute. And aged care just hasn't had the profile that other sectors have had. So I just thought it was a real opportunity to move across and make a real difference to people's lives. And I say that from um, the perspective of the residents and the clients, but also their families and really importantly, the workforce. And then, of course, I had mum and dad in my ear saying, can you make sure it's all right for us?
1: (laughs) But you say he hasn't had the profile. It's had the Royal Commission.
0: It has had the Royal Commission. Yes, that was an unfortunate profiling exercise. Uh, So I think, um, yeah, when when I say it hasn't had the profile, it hasn't had the profile in terms of being like a beacon that people want to to join. So residents and clients come into the aged care system um, with a degree of reluctance. Nobody goes hopping and skipping into aged care. And then from a workforce perspective, it has really been you know, if you look at nurses, hospitals have absolutely been more attractive places to work. And I think we we just need to do a much better job at showing people what working in, in aged care looks like. It's incredibly rewarding.
1: The purpose must be second to none.
0: The purpose is second to none. And you develop uh, relationships with people over time. So you get to know individuals in a way that you don't necessarily get to know them in in hospitals where it can be more transactional. Um, And you get to know their families, their preferences. You know, so people actually do form really lovely friendships. It's wonderful. And I think the other lovely thing about aged care is the workforce gets constant feedback in real time. You know, a resident will smile. They will thank you. Their families will. And, And my experience has been that people who are inside aged care have a much rosier view of it than people who are commentating from outside. So, And I can talk about the the Royal Commission. So I took the job at Regis in the middle of a Royal Commission and I did that deliberately. I actually left a job where I had three commissions royal concurrently. So I actually thought moving to a job with one Royal Commission sounded not too bad. Um, What I didn't know at the time was that our Royal Commission would be extended twice and that we would also be dealing with a global pandemic in the middle of it. Uh, And I feel I've got really mixed views about the Royal Commission. I feel so sad when I hear the stories of poor care. Um, My experience of aged care doesn't match the terrible experiences described in the Royal Commission. And I think that at times um, single examples were rapidly generalised to a whole sector in a way that I've never seen in the hospital sector. So you wouldn't take one example of poor care in a hospital and generalise it to the whole Australian system. But we saw a lot of that through the Royal Commission and a lot of shame and a lot of workers really um, questioning themselves and whether they wanted to stay in the sector. And I think we're still feeling that with the the turnover and the burnout.
1: So it's what, demoralising for a lot of people, is it?
0: It was. It was really demoralising. I've often used the word, I felt the workforce was demonised, and uh, when you meet aged care workers, by and large, they will be the kindest, most compassionate people you will ever meet. And they do the work of caring for somebody else's loved one as if they were their own. So to demonise people like that made me really sad.
1: So Linda, look, maybe can you give me an opposing view or the, or the view that you see? Can you walk us through a modern aged sort of care facility?
0: Sure. So I think it, um, the the modern aged care facility, facilities are nothing at all like the old ones and I, I've actually just broken one of my own rules which is not to use the word facility so I call them aged care homes because facility to me sounds really institutional and horrible mm. and that's what we're trying to get away from so these days uh, most of the rooms are single rooms and most most residents have an ensuite as well. And they're they're lovely rooms and lovely en-suites. Uh, There's been an enormous amount of work on food. Um, So the dining experience. So I go and, and have lunch or dinner with residents and the food is fantastic. It's really, really lovely food. There's a big emphasis on lifestyle and activities. And you see really lovely friendships and communities between residents and residents and their families. This is all, of course, um, outside of the COVID world that we're living in at the moment where there's so much restricted access to older people. If
1: I'm living that community, am I, am I fearful? Because there's been, there's been an enormous amount of, again, I'm not sure if it's, beat up is the wrong word, but we've just pushed and pushed COVID. So much in this country. I think the media's got a lot to answer for it. But it must strike, is it just exacerbated fear?
0: So most people are fearful when they come in. Yeah. Um, I cannot tell you how many residents have said to me if they'd have known what aged care was actually like, they would have moved in sooner. So we've got a real image problem in aged care. Okay. And as I said to you, nobody comes hopping and skipping no. to enter aged care. No. But we can make it the best that we can for a person if they can't live in their own home any longer so it's never going to be their own home but we can make it homely Uh, we can make it um, make the experience something that they value and I think the fear means to me that we've got a lot of people living in the community who are not actually getting the care and support that they need or deserve because of that fear
1: What's been the impact, again, of pandemic, of immigration? Because I understand a lot of the workers come from overseas.
0: That's right. So from a a Regis perspective, 70% of our workforce was born overseas. So they either grew up here or they migrated for work. We have an incredibly diverse workforce and there are so many wonderful aspects to that diverse workforce that the residents really value and we value as well. So closed borders, actually, that's a, a workforce pipeline that's really important for us. Um, and so we're very much looking forward to the day when borders reopen, and and we will have greater workforce supply.
1: So tell me, you've been pretty upfront about this. So you know, you used the word demonised, and that's a strong word to use. We've got closed borders. In terms of uh, as a leader, how do you inspire those to? one, remain in the sector, and two, come into the, uh, uh, the home?
0: It's a very good question. So if I if I tackle the workforce question, there was an aged care workforce census released just last week. The average turnover, average in our sector is 30%, 35% for registered nurses. Coming out of the hospital system, you know, I would see turnover rates of between 3 and 5%. You can't help but just be shocked and alarmed at the turnover. Um, So we need to do much more for our workforce. We need to make it um, more attractive, obviously, for more people. But something's going wrong with retention if we have turnover of that rate. And again, that's an average across the sector. So I think there are issues around workload that the Royal Commission picked up. And we've got really firm recommendations around workload and government has committed to providing more funding for more people on the floor. So that will absolutely help. There's also a a case around work value. So the the work hasn't been valued terribly well. There's a a work value case up in front of the Fair Work Commission at the moment. Um, So that'll be heard later this year and into next year. But there's such pay disparity between our sector and the hospital sector, and the disability sector.
1: Why is that? Why aren't people getting well compensated for the work that they do?
0: It's a really good question. I think it's a, it probably relates to the valuing of feminised work. So I think there's something in there. The feminised workforces are often paid less than more diverse, gender-diverse workforces. So there's something there that we need to address and then I think it really has been how much value, how much visibility has the general community had on aged care? More people need to be looking into our sector. They need to be looking at what's going on and helping helping the sector to move forward.
1: Yeah, but retirement living now in certain parts is, can come into the age of 55, can't it? So I've got retirement living, then I've got aged care, which may be the next step. But we're addressing this at a younger age than we did 30 years ago.
0: So the average age of entry into residential aged care would be about 84 years of age. Um, And people are coming into residential aged care now when they're older, they're more frail, more underlying health conditions. So aged care in the residential sense is turning more and more into subacute care. So a much higher level of care. And then part of the government's policy changes and part of the reform is to support more older people to live at home for a longer period of time if we can provide care and services that are appropriate for that person into the home and that is absolutely sensible policy and it's what older people want. We know that somebody's experience of aged care is only ever enhanced by having a known group of carers. Right. So that turnover is is poor from an experience um, perspective. Yep. It's really expensive from a company perspective. We invest an enormous amount into training and onboarding. And so, you know, if somebody leaves quickly, that's it's it's not money well spent. Is it
1: prohibitive for most people to have aged care, a sense of cost?
0: Not at all. Not at all. So I think this is where, you know, um, like my earlier comments about us being so lucky to have the hospital system that we have in Australia accessible to anybody, we have the same accessibility for aged care. So any older person, regardless of means, can access aged care and they can access beautiful aged care. Um, So we've, we've got a couple of different systems Um, So, somebody with the means to to pay is required to, to pay a contribution towards their accommodation and they can either do that through a refundable accommodation deposit or a daily rental type charge. If you don't have the means to pay, the government actually pays the accommodation charge for you and then the other charges are capped at a percentage of the pension. So, aged care is actually accessible to every person in Australia.
1: What are you going to do then, Linda, to attract the the staff that you need to stop the turnover?
0: So one of the things that I'm really keen on is that we value the work of carers. It's really important. This is extraordinary work that they're doing. It's hard physically, emotionally, you know, and there's grief associated with it as well. So all of that needs to be understood and valued. We need to train and support our workforce, and we need to pay them a higher rate, so that they're not tempted to go off into other sectors that pay more. So one of the things that you'll find in the, the commentary is around, you can get a job stacking shelves in a supermarket. Yep. Probably don't want to make that comparison because I don't want to you know suggest that that's lesser, but there are so many job opportunities at that pay rate that don't require the training and the skills that aged care workers have that ought to be rewarded for the training and the skills that they have.
1: So what's going to be the trigger to change it?
0: So we're working as a as an industry on workforce strategy. Um, so there's a, a lot of work that's underway at the moment. Work around training, work around supporting structures. There's a lot of work around making sure that providers have appropriate governance, appropriate values. That's all part of the reform that is being pushed through at the moment. Uh, and all of those things will contribute to workforce stability.
1: So are you impressed by the recommendations of the Royal Commission? And the only reason I ask that, Linda, is there's so many Royal Commissions we've done as a nation, where we, we look back 20 years ago, that last Royal Commission, and very few things were ever followed through with.
0: So, with this Royal Commission, it came off the back of a decade of reports saying the same thing. So, did we need a Royal Commission to know that we've got a problem in our sector that needs to be addressed? No, we already knew. What we're hopeful of as as an industry is that the Royal Commission gives some clout to the recommendations that may very well have been made before and made repeatedly but now they've got a Royal Commission sitting behind them. The response that came out from the federal government was a firm response to support the reform, and they've put money behind it, and we can see that money in the forward estimates. Uh, We can also see the intent of government through the changes that are being made now. So I think as as a sector, we are optimistic about the changes being seen all the way through.
1: So the business of aged care, good business?
0: It's a great business. It's a wonderful business, like lots of caring businesses. And and I think one of the things for me is that you can run a really good business and provide really great care, and those things are all interrelated. So if I provide fantastic care and a fantastic experience for a resident, they or their families will tell somebody else about it, and they are more likely to come into my service. The more people I have in my service, the more efficient I can be. Um, which helps my financials. So all of these things are interrelated very, very closely, and it all comes down to that face-to-face human contact between a carer and a resident. So you just need to replicate that with great reliability across thousands upon thousands of interactions every day.
1: It's enormous, isn't it, when you think of it in in that terminology? It is, and the reliance on these individuals to perform, come in and day in and day and as you say, it could be, you know, quite a um, a sad ending.
0: That's right. And then I think, from a, a business perspective, we have an aging demographic, so our our business is only going to grow. We have more more older people, and more older people who are living with comorbidities, um, just because of their advanced age. So we need to we need to keep growing, and we will need to keep maturing and be able to care for people of higher acuity than we used to. And even if you look now, the kinds of residents that are living in residential aged care now would have been in a medical ward in a hospital 15 years ago.
1: The role of technology then, you want to talk us through what the changes are happening, what the impact it's going to be during my stay?
0: Yeah, so technology um, is a fascinating one when applied to the aged care context Mm -hmm. um, because so much of what we do is dependent on human interaction so you know you you won't have technology replacing that that really needed human interaction and social interaction we use technology uh, as you would expect in a range of back of house functions um, and we're always improving those And then we use technology for things like robotic animals. So in 2015, we just introduced robotic animals um, to our residents, and particularly those living with dementia. And the animals respond to touch, and they respond to sound. And you watch a resident sitting with a seal, um, a beautiful furry seal, and you watch it move, you know, when they stroke its fur, uh, or when they speak, and it's really beautiful. The other really exciting possibility, I think, is around wearable technology and where we can take that from an aged care context and using it for predictive analytics as well so that, you know, we can see when somebody's going to deteriorate and intervene um, with appropriate clinical care earlier. So lots and lots of
1: opportunity. Virtual and augmented reality, have you started dipping your toe in that space?
0: Yeah, so for a long time now, we've had virtual reality and, again, really popular with residents and really wonderful, you know, when you're trying to help somebody tap into old memories, um, that virtual reality is absolute gold and you will often see somebody come come out of themselves a bit when you're able to tap into some of those older memories.
1: I was doing a little bit of homework, Linda, before I came today, um, and one of my colleagues mentioned the whole thing around ecosystems. So I was just sort of an example given. So um, I'm an elderly person, 84 plus, as you say. Maybe I'm up in Queensland, and um, the grandkids are finally going to come and visit me from from Melbourne. Is there anything designed so if they're staying in a Regis community, that I'm going to get a discount flight flying Qantas or something like that? Is that are we starting to think more holistically about the ecosystem and how you're going to to build from that? And the second part is, as you're saying, we are only getting older in this country co-op was founded by farmers many years ago which meant it created efficiencies are we seeing swaps and con- joining together of other communities to maximize it must cost a fortune just to have one bed and then you need the physiotherapist to turn up for those if you have them turn up for three beds it's almost unprofitable but if i have got 40 lined up 20 of us and 20 down the road for the other competitor etc are we are we thinking like that or are we still traditional and this is our business unit and you'll get yours down the road
0: so I think there's a real um, a real mix. So I think if you think about things like um, people travelling, so in the context of COVID, one of the things that we did was um, roll out iPads to every home very quickly, train everyone on how to use FaceTime. Yeah, wow. So we had older people talking to the grandkids interstate yep. using FaceTime and that's been really fantastic. One of the things that we can do, because we have got the national footprint, is help older people take holidays. So if we've got somebody living in a home in Melbourne and we know they're still going to have high care requirements, well, we've got a whole lot of beautiful homes in Queensland. Um, So, if a family wants to take a holiday and they want to take an older person with them, then if we've got a bed, we can support somebody in one of our homes elsewhere. So, you absolutely see those kinds of innovations. Then you're absolutely right in terms of the expense and economies of scale. Um, So, you need to have uh, enough people to get those economies And I think you were going towards consolidation in the sector as well, because our sector is highly fragmented and it has a very, very long tail. And I think as our sector matures and with the additional regulatory burdens, um, some of those small providers, I, I can't see that they'll be able to keep going. So I think like other sectors that we've seen come before us, like private hospitals or pathology, we will see that consolidation across our sector.
1: How many players are out there at the moment, just out of interest for for the audience? It's thousands, isn't it? Or is it hundreds?
0: It is thousands. thousands. No, it is is actually thousands. So it's a cottage
1: industry in some regards too, isn't it?
0: Well, look, you you go from one extreme to the other. So you will have single home providers and then you've got listed providers. Um, But even as one of the biggest providers, we've got about 3.5% of the market and we're one of the biggest. So you are looking at a highly fragmented sector. And then it's the same with home care. And home care is a volume business. You can't survive unless you've got the volume. So, again, I think we will see some consolidation there as well.
1: And so, look, if I'm going to put my loved one in, is it going to cost me an arm and a leg?
0: Well, again, you've got choices around that. So people with means have some responsibilities around paying for accommodation. Government supports every resident, regardless of means, around basic care and services. Yes. Um, But there is a daily charge on top of that. And then you can choose um, if you want additional services as well. So the way it works is if you do not have the means to pay, yep. you can still access aged care and beautiful contemporary aged care. Do Australians know that?
1: Because I, I sometimes I think that they think, my God, I've got to you know sell the house and et cetera just to put my loved one in some sort of safe and secure and happy environment.
0: I don't think it is well understood and it's complex. It is actually a really complex system, so you know I like to think I'm of above average intelligence. I come out of a complex system in terms of health and hospitals. Well, you
1: got to be because you have got both your legs working when you really get going on that on that dance floor.
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, but I, I had to go and do a course to understand all of the um, the aged care funding models. So I think that the most important thing is that the accommodation deposit, yeah. if you are required to pay one, is. Fully refundable, and I think that is not understood. So does that
1: mean I'm means tested? Then is that is that there's some sort of benchmark? Is there?
0: That's exactly right. Yes, it's a means tested element. So if you've got um, means, then you would be expected to pay towards your accommodation, but you have a choice, and that choice is you can either pay it as a fully refundable deposit. Okay. So a lump sum, and that's where you hear people talk about the bigger numbers in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, or you can pay a daily fee. So I think if you, again, if you put into a layperson's parlance, it's like buying or renting a room. Gotcha. So you have choice. So you don't have to sell the house if you can afford to pay the rent.
1: Who's leading the way in the world here in what, what you see as the best structures in aged care?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think COVID has exposed um, problems in aged care across the world. And, you know, the issues that we're dealing with in Australia are not isolated to us. So if you look at what's happened overseas, they're all having the same conversations. I think there are some really interesting models coming out of places like Denmark and the the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. um, particularly when it comes to dementia care. So more than half of all residents in residential aged care are living with dementia. All right. As we move forward, I would anticipate that that will increase because more people will live at home where they can and have home care services. Okay. Um, so we really need to be looking at models of care for those who need memory support.
1: I had to say, it's an enormous market then, isn't it? When you, when you speak of it like that, what have we got in place to... To manage that, are we are we thinking that far ahead at the moment, Linda? We are. And working
0: with residents with dementia means that you've really got to think about the built form and the design, as well as everything that you do from a care perspective. And I think that's where we're making progress in Australia is actually having a look at what does the building need to look like? What's the carpet that we choose so that we don't create um, depth perception or kind of visual illusions uh, for people? And how do we work out the layout so that somebody can safely wander? Because often residents with dementia yeah. want to wander. And so why wouldn't we let people wander? Yep. We just need to make sure that it's it's safe for them and also stimulating for them. So there's a lot of work to be done around there. But okay. I think this is really an opportunity for our sector to have a look much more closely at dementia models of care
1: look, what's happening during COVID, Lynn, from what I'm hearing, there's 12 to 18%, anywhere between that and maybe even higher, of Australians who may not get the double vaccination. And yet, you know, government's going to say, well, once we crack that 80%, we're, we're, we're okay. And are you going to prohibit me from visiting my elderly grand, great-grandparent or grandparent because so I choose not to, under my freedom in this country, not to be double vaccinated? What What, what happens here now?
0: With COVID, we're really um, moving very much into looking at the rights of an individual against the rights of a community. So in our sector, government mandated that every aged care worker must have the the vaccination and, and we're at 100%. So any residential aged care home that you visit will have all of their staff vaccinated government also rolled out a vaccination process for residents and I think we're sitting around 85 to 90 percent of all residents in residential aged care are vaccinated. So this then throws up some really interesting issues uh, in terms of vaccinated versus unvaccinated visitors but also residents because you can see in some residential aged care homes if everybody's vaccinated that resident community might not want somebody new coming in if they're not vaccinated, just as in the same way they wouldn't want an unvaccinated worker.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so I think we've got a lot of complex uh, work ahead of us around that. And then, of course, we still, we're still we all under public health orders and directions that differ between jurisdictions. Um, some of our residents haven't been allowed to have visitors by government direction for a really extended period of time. And I think that's one of the things that's really important to me is actually having a look at the impacts of social isolation against the impacts of COVID. And now that we have our resident population all, all able to be vaccinated, all of our staff vaccinated, uh, the vaccine is incredibly effective in terms of preventing death and serious illness. Yes. So it's, we, we need to reassess the risk now. To my mind, the risk of social isolation is now greater than the risk of COVID and its impacts.
1: Talk us through that. What's in social isolation that, that's just being loneliness? Is it? Is that what you're talking about?
0: It is. It's loneliness, it's being cut off from your normal community. So yeah. it's friends and families, but also your local community. Um, so in some jurisdictions, we have older people in the community who can leave home and participate in their community. But there's a prohibition on a resident in a residential aged care home from doing the same thing. So we've really compounded the impacts of social isolation in residential aged care. Um, And social isolation has many, many impacts. It's not just about loneliness. There are physical health impacts, wellbeing impacts. It impacts on a person's nutritional status, it can speed up cognitive decline. Right. So when you're looking at residents living with dementia, yep. there are so many impacts. So we need to have this conversation. So in Australia, we focused on a COVID zero strategy for a long period of time. Yep. As we open up, it is inevitable that COVID will circulate in the community. We have to balance the risks of the COVID infection and its impacts against all of the other risks. And if the impacts of COVID becomes like all of the other coronaviruses that have gone before it, which means mild illness for most people, we need to find a way to get our communities back to some kind of normal um, societal function. And so I think we have to have that conversation about how much risk are we willing to take? We need to ask the older people themselves how much risk they're willing to take, because we can't infantilise older people.
1: Yeah, exactly right. You can't keep, you can't lock them up all day long, can you? And keep them in, right. in a cocoon. And I would have thought most of them would have enough would believe that that we should open up and allow people to live.
0: We have really, really mixed views. So residents across the country have really mixed views. So some absolutely want to open up. Some are so frightened of opening up um that they're frightened of everything that they see see and hear about covid and they're worried about it coming into their residential aged care home some families want only vaccinated visitors to come in some families want to come in unvaccinated this is going to be a very very complex discussion
1: well let me ask you then you've you've got a very key role you're representing a particular part of society Uh, are you getting a voice in the discussion
0: Yes, yes, absolutely we are. So I sit on the Aged Care Advisory Group that advises the AHPPC. So I'm actually in a really privileged position in terms of providing input.
1: Well, The question I'm asking, I guess, is governments listening? Because I just see decisions being made and I actually wonder how that was actually formed and how, who was bounced off um, before such decisions were made. It's recognised in elements of the world, i.e. the UK, we're not going to get rid of it. Yet we've been pursuing this policy now for how long? And at what cost mentally to half of Australia, and yet we're going to come out of this, and they're going to put a snowball job on us and say, "Okay, we're now going to change tact overnight. Let's move forward." Well, where, where was the where was the thinking? Where 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 was it tested? Where was it pushed back against other people in society or business heads or whoever was making that decision? So, in your, I guess, in representing your area, are you getting a voice at that level? Is what I'm asking
0: yeah, so we are, and I think, um, you know I, I often said to people at the beginning of the pandemic, we were thinking in minutes and hours, not days and weeks and months, and the decisions that we had to make at the beginning of the pandemic were really time pressured because of the the risk. And um, we're in a different context now with vaccination. and um, so we need to take more time now to fully consider all of the risks and all of the circumstances. So I, I think it's a community discussion. And um, we need to remove the fear of COVID for vaccinated people.
1: Okay, so we have the discussion, and I'm, I'm the Premier or, I'm, or I'm, the, I'm the Prime Minister. I'm dialing in the CEO of Regis, and I've got the others around me. What's the answer? Which way are we going to go?
0: I'm not sure there is one answer, and I suspect it's going to come down to uh, communities of residents in individual homes having a voice about what it is that they want in their home. And that's part of our quality standards as well. Um, There is always, of course, the chance that um, governments will mandate vaccination for visitors and only allow visitors who have been double vaccinated. There's absolutely a chance that that might occur. And again, we need to have a discussion about that as a community.
1: Mm, Interesting times. What's a leader to you then?
0: So for me, leadership is really about providing the guide rails for people. So I don't like uh, command and control type structures. I think the role of the leader is to paint the picture really and set the expectations and then let other people work out how they're going to meet them. You need to support people through, but you also need to give people a chance to learn. And I think one of the most terrifying things that happened to me early in my leadership career was when I had a a CEO say to me, Linda, you will make mistakes and we're going to let you make them. And as a recovering perfectionist, I almost lost my mind saying, what do you mean you let me make mistakes? Of course you'll stop me. And he said, no, actually, uh, there's no better learning environment than fixing your own mistake. So I think as long as the mistake isn't harmful, we need to let people learn and make it okay. Okay for people not to always be
1: right. Do you think the concept of leadership's changed in the last 24 months? Um, if I look at from the outside of things as a search firm, ESG is mentioned nonstop. Different values, purpose, my, my role in society, if I can, when I go to work. Is this the appropriate leadership that's going to take me out of this pandemic into the, you know, hopefully the next bright period ahead? Am I confident in their ability, as you say, to, to lead and make the appropriate decisions? And as a leader, I assume, and I would have thought, you're probably feeling more scrutiny or being watched by those looking up to you than, than ever before as well.
0: I think coming out of the health sector, a lot of those things were standard in the health sector anyway. Okay. Um, so I think for me personally, it's not too much of a, a change in terms of those expectations around really thinking in a very holistic sense. I think leadership more generally has changed. Um, In a pandemic, you need to be so agile. You need to be able to assess information very, very quickly. And as I say for us, we were making decisions in minutes and hours. And we still often are when we have a COVID risk approaching one of our homes. Really, really rapid decision making and an acknowledgement that you won't always get that right. Um, but to back your people in to make the decisions that they need to make at the time. And you know what? With new information, if we need to change course, then we can do that. And again, we're making those decisions very quickly. I think the other big thing for me, and it's been a real learning for me as well, coming out of hospitals into a more distributed company is I don't have that ready face-to-face access with all of the workforce. Yeah. So, you know, I used to walk around a hospital, I'd see all of the nurses and the doctors and the physios and everybody else. I could talk to them. I could come in at night time and talk to a whole lot of them or on the weekend. Here, I've got 64 homes across the country and I haven't been able to fly now for a really long time. So how do I then connect in um, so that people feel that they know me and they know where I'm going? And I get to hear back from them directly. So we've been doing a lot of work around that. Um, I said to the board when I started, um, you know, they said, how would you go about 64 homes? I said, oh, it's my personal business to know every manager that we have in the place and hopefully a whole lot of people below. They said, how will you do that? I said, well, I've been doing it. So, So that is what I do. And it's really important that the managers know me directly and that I know them directly. And if they feel they've got a problem, that they can call me any time that they need to and know that they will get a reasonable response. So that's really important to me from a leadership perspective is that people know that they can come to you with a problem and that you're not going to overreact. So I, I think that that's important we've done all kinds of things using technology. Mm-hmm. Technology is never, ever as good as face-to-face. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It, it's done the job for us. And, and there's a whole lot of that that we will build into our business. But I tell you, from my perspective, I cannot wait to jump back into an aeroplane and get back out and talk to residents, talk to their families, talk to staff, um, see how the home is operating. You can't beat being in a home to understand how it's working
1: so what are you doing Linda are you writing the uh the weekly update or are you having your are you doing a video or you're doing your Friday afternoon zoom what how are you communicating to me
0: so I I write all of my own updates I don't have anyone else write them for me because I, I feel I really I want people to hear from me directly um so I do that Uh, We're holding a fortnightly Webex with all of our manager group and I front that. Happy to take any questions, you know, at any time. I've done an open Zoom for staff today um, so anybody can dial in. So we're we're doing a lot of that. The the other thing that we're doing is a a weekly wrap from one of the executives. I think one of the things we can all do as leaders in the middle of a pandemic is normalise how we're all feeling. So you don't have to be a hero it's absolutely fine to say, you know what, I feel a little bit anxious this week. I've got kids at home that I'm homeschooling. I've got parents who are elderly that I can't go and visit. And I've got all of this stuff going on at work. So the leadership team has done a really fantastic job in just giving a bit more of themselves. And again, like I've I've modelled that. I'm an oversharer from way back. People know far too much about me. Um, I've always been the same, but I think it's, it's really helpful to normalise. So I'll be on a call with our staff and there'll be the sound of elephants coming from upstairs at my house uh, and I say to people, God, I'm so sorry about the kids and the dogs. Sorry about that noise. I think they're meant to be doing school. i um, <laughs> not quite sure what they're doing, but it's very noisy. Uh, and I get so much feedback about simple things like that, just saying, oh, thank goodness. So that means if I have a, a child come into a, a call, no one's kind of going to overreact or think I'm not working.
1: What about the, the really difficult parts now when um, you've got to bring new people in? How are you finding bringing new people in during a period of COVID? That's hard.
0: So for me... I'd only been um, with Regis for three months before we heard about this global pandemic, and I've brought in a lot of new people in the middle of a pandemic. And to watch the way people respond has actually been a lesson in leadership. It really has. The people who've come in and just assessed a situation and said, right, I can see my role here and I can see I'm not going to have the start I normally have, that I'm not going to have a proper induction that I'm not going to go around and visit all of the homes and meet all of the people face-to-face. So how am I actually going to cope with that? And it's been remarkable. I think the adaptation of everybody has been remarkable. I'm interviewing people all the time now over a screen. Uh, I have people starting that I've never met face-to-face. I've made all of my assessments over a screen. That's so unusual, but I think, you know, we're adaptable. It's the way the human brain works.
1: So, what's the good side of uh, being locked down then?
0: For me, I get to weed more. <laughs> so, there are so many good sides to lockdown for me personally. Yeah. Um, so, I, I work really, really hard. And on the weekends, I love nothing more than not leaving the perimeter of where I live. Lockdown now means that I have to do that. So, I get to potter around the garden, I get to play games with my kids. I get to take the dogs on walks. It's all roses for me, but I also recognise that for most people, particularly those who moved about the community much more, the impacts are enormous. For me, I haven't found the impacts to be too bad just because of the way I I live my life anyway.
1: You talked earlier about the feminised workforce. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what your thoughts are around that? Because you are a chief exec, so... Is there a ceiling to break through? is it Is it difficult based on your experience, or what what were you trying to outline there for us?
0: So about eighty percent of my workforce is female, mm-hmm. so that's what I mean by a feminised workforce, okay. is that most of the roles, especially the care roles, are held by women. Across all businesses of any description, the further up you get, the the less women there are. Working in health and and hospitals and now aged care, um, because it is such a feminised workforce, we're all used to seeing women managers and leaders. There is that really great saying, you can't be what you can't see. Um, I've always seen great women leaders and had great role models and
1: mentors. Linda, you you seem to advance fairly rapidly in your career. As you say, you're studying a number of subjects at university, unsure which way you're going to go, and then um, embark as a young scientist, into a career which leads you to become chief exec. Um, One of the big interesting things I've always noticed as being a search consultant is how many people could have got there but just don't get there because of that lack of confidence when they really sit down and, and express it to you. Have you always been a confident person to get to the top?
0: Well, I think because I didn't know where I was going, I didn't know where the top was. So I would say that first. Um, I've I've always been confident to express my own views, but I I have to say going into health out of a lab. So, you know, you've got to pitch me in the white lab coat and the goggles and then being a health service executive uh, within a couple of years. I had imposter syndrome for most of the time that I worked in health and absolutely felt that at some point someone would discover I shouldn't be there and and tell me it had been lovely, but it was time that I, you know, kind of popped off. So I remember saying to my last executive team in my old job where I was for 10 years that I had imposter syndrome for the first eight of those 10 years. I don't know how I lost it, but I'm so glad it's gone.
1: What created it? Well, like, what is that sort of thing? It is interesting. Now, here we go. We go to school. We get taught how to read and write, but we never get taught anything about confidence. In fact, if anything, it's, a, it's the harshest part of our life and for many people. I'm sure you haven't failed too much as an academic based on what I've read about you. You've starred literally all the way through your career. So, how can someone like yourself have imposter syndrome?
0: I think part of it is naivety and assumptions. So, always assuming that other people must um, have knowledge that I didn't have. Mm. Being a scientist and actually probably just being the way I am, I was always happy to say when I didn't know something and needed, um, needed to understand, what I didn't match that with was that most other people wouldn't know either and also needed to ask questions. So I think it, you know, it's that assumption that other people know more than you because they present confidently. But then I imagine other people would say the same thing about me.
1: What do you reckon made a change? I
0: suspect some of the change comes with age. You know, as you get older, you you lose some of those um, syndromes that you, you carry from your teenage years, I think. I suspect I carried the imposter syndrome for much longer than I needed to. Uh, and I think just as I got older and more experienced, uh, it fell away.
1: And for those out there who are listening to this, who probably you know, maybe deep down feel the same, what advice would you give them?
0: I think it really is to take the broader perspective and we all learn something for the first time at some point. Nobody enters the world full of knowledge. And so I just think not only do we all learn something for the first time, but we all learn different things at different times. So there's no shame
1: in it. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of people I meet in my role never know half the stuff but don't seem to suffer in confidence that's for sure and it's fascinating to watch you're building your career as an executive but you also got a number of uh, you held a number of roles in the boardroom is that something you're going to pursue later on in in the ASX land as well?
0: yeah I love my board roles um, and they complement my executive role incredibly well mm-hmm. I learned so much from those those other boardrooms uh, and the fantastic people that I work with. So I find it incredibly valuable and I hope I'm giving something valuable back as well. In terms of the future, I haven't planned that far ahead.
1: (laughs) Linda, as a CEO in a pretty pretty difficult uh, and challenging uh, sector, where do you spend your time now?
0: I've been here now for two years. I was here for three months before we were hit by a pandemic. I joined in the middle of a Royal Commission We've dealt with floods, fires, earthquake, a cyber attack, a couple of takeover bids. I'm wondering what else the universe can can throw my way. Every time I say that, one of my execs tells me to be quiet because they they think I'm tempting the the gods to throw something else. So where we are now, we've got the Royal Commission behind us. We're on the cusp of really major reform.
1: Um,
0: And that's a very exciting place to be. There's so much that we can do and and should do, and I'm really excited about getting into that. For me, it comes back still to the fundamentals of providing excellent care, excellent care, excellent service, excellent accommodation, and I'm loving actually working in the private sector and having the levers available that I didn't have before. Um, so that kind of fills my competitive need as well, uh, and you know the need to to keep driving improvement and driving performance. But I think we, we are still very much focused on the fundamentals of our business.
1: And Linda, if I was finishing university this year and I was contemplating my career like you were, why would I consider joining the aged care sector?
0: That's a great question. And Interestingly, having recruited a lot of people lately and asking them why they're interested in aged care, I think I might actually parrot some of their responses, which has been people have worked in all kinds of different sectors and they're looking for purpose. And it goes back to what you were saying before around, you know, the focus on ESG and purpose. This is a, a sector that is absolutely full of purpose and goodwill. And it needs all of the commercial strength behind it as well. So it's a wonderful combination.
1: If you were to look back at that young lady who was studying, what, science, literature, French, and everything else you were studying, what advice would you give her today?
0: It'll all be okay. That there are many, many different pathways. You know, there's no one correct pathway. You know, sometimes I think, oh, would I have done a PhD But everything I've done has taught me um, so much. And I I use it all, maybe not the direct technical knowledge, but the research skills, the writing skills, the communication skills, I use all of them. So I'm not sure I would um, change that. You're a long time working. So I think if you've got the opportunity of education and a really good broad education, you know, there are worse ways that you can spend your time. Uh, So I would really encourage that. And then I think the other thing I would encourage. Myself is to just keep taking the the opportunities that are offered and to only do things that you like.
1: On that, Linda, I'd really appreciate you making the time to join us today.
0: It's been a pleasure, thanks so much, Greg.
1: You've been listening to no limitations. Mm-hmm.